Think curious and creative. If you've got a good relationship with the patient on the other side, ask them to put the camera on the floor and, and stand in front of it so you can really see those ankles and you sometimes get a better view of the ankles there than you ever would in your actual practice. I am not advocating for exclusive telehealth provision of care, but I think that if we can blend it into our usual care, the results are fantastic. And there's actually a growing literature to support that as well. That was Dr. Brent Ohada and Dr. Tommy Gershman. They're our guests on this special episode of Around the Room. We're going to be talking about telehealth in rheumatology. Hi, everyone. Welcome back to Around the Room. I'm Daniel Ennis. Before we get to our guests, I want to announce some upcoming episodes on a whole bunch of interesting topics, including psoriatic arthritis, Sjogren's disease, large vessel vasculitis, myositis, autoinflammatory diseases, IgG4-related diseases. If you have questions you'd like answered by the experts, please contact us through the CRA Twitter account, CRASCRROOM, or by email at info at room.ca. Now on to our guests. Dr. Bren Ohada is an adult rheumatologist and clinical assistant professor in the UBC Division of Rheumatology. He is the co-chair of the CRA's telehealth working group. He has a clinical focus on Indigenous health and health equity and has been a longtime advocate for integrating telehealth to improve access to rheumatologic care in rural BC. He won the 2017 Innovation Award in the UBC Division of Rheumatology for his work in the field. Dr. Tommy Gershman is a community-based pediatric rheumatologist and sports medicine specialist. Dr. Gershman has assisted with the BC Ministry of Health's digital health strategy and associated policies. He has extensive leadership experience, having worked on various doctors of BC committees before becoming a member of its board. Following this, he served as the specialist of BC president until 2020. He is currently the co-chair of a community-based specialist working group. Both have played important roles in advocating for telehealth in rheumatology care. Hello, Brent and Tommy. Welcome to the show. Hi, Daniel. Hi, Daniel. It's great to have you both here. And I want to start off by establishing where telehealth was even a short time ago. So, Brent, you've been doing telehealth since 2015. It's hard to remember a time before COVID, but what was telehealth like in the olden days? That's a great question, Daniel. Uh, I think telehealth was uh, very much a niche specialty back, you know, in 2015 when I became involved in this. Uh, uh, it was being used typically, at least in British Columbia, to connect one hospital to another hospital. Uh, it was very sort of bulky and cumbersome. And what we were seeing at that time was, you know, uh, rapid innovation in the private sphere, you know, with things like FaceTime and, and other sort of uh, programs. And and we in, in healthcare were, were far behind. Uh, however, with the, the COVID epidemic, I think this is one of the silver linings. There's been a huge a- adoption of telehealth as a consequence of this. And Tommy, when did you start using telemedicine and, and why did it appeal to you in particular? Yeah, I, I think, I mean, before the pandemic, I had had a couple of uh, experiences and we used sort of Skype. Um, I was actually was collaborating with uh, Dr. Michelle Teo on, on a couple shared patients where, you know, we, we sort of fired it up and gave it a try. And, and uh, it was definitely uh, clunky and, you know, very different. And it was not necessarily uh, provider to patient directly. There was often, it was always somebody else there kind of involved and um, be another rheumatologist or, you know, I think uh, family doctor or so on. 
So, so COVID kind of became the the push for us to actually develop these technologies uh, more quickly to become clinically uh, useful uh, when we couldn't bring people safely into to clinic, I suppose. Most definitely. Yeah. So let's talk about how telehealth has been rolled out in Canada and how it's being utilized. Uh, the CRA has certainly been taking an active role in this, but I, I just want to give a little bit of background and set the table for listeners. So in December 2020, the CRA Telehealth Committee published their physician survey results on telehealth use in Canada, and that would have been kind of, you know, a, a few months for sure into the pandemic, but still a few years ago. They documented that 36% of appointments were still in person, 45% by phone, and 19% by video. 30% of physicians were seeing the majority of new consults by telehealth, yet only about a quarter of the doctors who responded to the survey said they were either comfortable or very comfortable using telehealth. And Brent, maybe I'll direct this to you. What do you make of those numbers? Well, Daniel, I think that we pivoted towards telehealth uh, by necessity as a consequence of the COVID-19 pandemic. Uh, it would have been lovely if we had been able to to pivot in a more organized fashion. But like everything during COVID-19, I think we made do with what we had and did the best that we could under the circumstances. Um, I think... Uh, there's still quite a lot of people that see patients by telephone, uh, by telephone exclusively. Um, for me, I think uh, one of the benefits of of telehealth is, you know, being able to do a physical exam uh, by video, and uh, and I think it's really the CRA's job to try to improve the standard of care that we're providing by telehealth to ensure that um, we really are doing the the best we can to obtain a physical exam with the limitations we have using telehealth. And, and I know that you've spoken and, and lectured about this um, pretty extensively. So you're, you're certainly working to that end. You know, two years into the pandemic, um, what progress, uh, Tommy, maybe what do you see as the progress we've made in terms of using telehealth? Yeah, I mean, if anything, this has been a real trial by fire. And I think people are variably... Um, comfortable with different technologies and things like that. Um, I think my own experience when it, it was sort of, okay, next week, I got to call all my patients and shift them to video. I mean, I, I still remember those first couple of days. And I remember going through my patient list and thinking like, oh, that shouldn't, that probably won't work. Oh, that probably won't work through telehealth. And, and in the end, I think I sort of said, okay, well, let's just give it a try and see what happens. And the nice thing at the beginning, at least what I experienced was, you know, everybody was, you know, trying to help each other out, right? Like the everybody, you know, the patients were happy to be seen. Everybody was patient and understanding of the situation. And I think that allowed me to sort of be curious and say, okay, well, maybe we can get you to stand up and walk around and, oh, look at that. I, I can definitely see that effusion of your knee. That's quite obvious. And I remember picking up my first, like, you know, hip limited range of motion on a patient thinking, oh, that that actually was pretty obvious. And of course, I confirmed it in person later. So for me, I think, you know, by using, we, we learned a lot. And then I think also by sharing. And I think Brent and the CRA has really taken a leadership role at this. I mean, I remember watching Brent's uh, intro webinar, which which I'm sure a lot of people watched that had some really practical tips 
that improved my confidence in in going forward. Um, And since then, there's been lots more dialogue and discussions that I think have uh, moved the needle forward in terms of quality as well. Right. And and so you you kind of wear multiple hats. And as I mentioned before, uh, you were working as uh, head of the specialists at BC. I'm curious about what was happening behind the scenes to encourage rheumatologists to embrace telehealth, if you can speak to that at all. Yeah, for sure. I I think, um, you know, at the beginning of the pandemic, sort of, well, actually, exactly two years ago, it was, uh, I remember the first first week of March, you know, there were these thoughts and discussions about, um, you know, where, where are things spreading? What are we going to have to shift? Um, what's happening in doctors' waiting rooms, which, I mean, classically are overflowing with people and coughing and so on. Um, and we started thinking about how do we shift people to to telehealth and what would that mean? And uh, I, along with some of the other leaders at, at Doctors of BC, and I'm speaking about British Columbia's experience, um, talked about what would it take to um, sort of enable uh, people to sort of jump into this. And we thought, number one, you have to be able to bill appropriately for it. And it was felt that, you know, if you're delivering quality care, you should be paid the same. I think that was pretty early on, we felt uh, equivalent, uh, equivalency anyways. And then the other thing was, you need to have the technology there to to actually do it. And and what were we going to use? And, and Zoom, you know, was nowhere near where it is today. Right. But um, so we actually, we actually wrote uh, to the BC Medical Services Commission to try to change some of the language in our um, physician master agreement to enable uh, sort of full-fledged, you know, telemedicine. And at the time, it was like, we just need to keep providing care. So whatever kind of works. And some privacy things were limited. And, you know, there was all these discussions about what's going to be the most secure or not, what goes, what data goes through the U.S., so there was a lot of talk behind the background, and I think I'm pretty proud in BC that fairly quickly um, adopted a you know just get healthcare done approach, and uh, we're still in that environment where uh, you can use video or telephone um, to provide most types of visits. And and that was you know I I, uh, I work in BC as well. All, all three of us do, and and that was kind of the experience from my side, which is, you know, don't worry about the finances and the businessy aspect of your job, just keep delivering good care. And doctors of BC and specialists of BC and the government will kind of, they will sort it out. And and so I know there was lots going on behind the scenes. Yeah. And I, and I think, you know, part of why we sort of jumped in there so fast, or what I thought was, you know, it's going to be hard enough for people to to trust this new technology and right. and even just the workflows and I I mean how to tell patients how to prepare patients how to send them a link whatever was going to be enough so let's not worry about the billing side of things um, and we and we tried to work with as many different vendors as possible to try to get not necessarily a one size fits all solution but to have mm-hmm. multiple options for technology some that were integrated directly to your EMR and others less so. So, so now that we've kind of talked about kind of where things began and, and have progressed through the pandemic, maybe we can turn a little bit to um, the patient side of things. So, so Brent, you've been doing this for quite some time and paying pretty close attention 
um, to the literature, I'm sure. What's your impression uh, from your personal experience and, and literature? How do patients actually feel about the use of telemedicine? Great question, Daniel. So there's quite a lot of literature um, that's come out in the past year or two about uh, acceptability of, of virtual care uh, in the rheumatology world, both uh, acceptability for clinicians as well as acceptability for patients. And consistently, there's been very high patient acceptability for telehealth. Um, I think probably the most promising thing is the fact that you know we may be able to use uh, virtual care to improve access to a lot of patient populations that otherwise have been uh, neglected by our current healthcare system. Patients who live in rural areas, patients who struggle with um, many, many challenges in, in accessing healthcare, either because of, you know, social determinants of health or whatnot. Um, it is, however, a, uh, a double-edged sword, so to speak, which is to say that on the one hand, we may be able to use virtual care to improve access to many marginalized populations. On the other hand, um, some surveys have shown that patients who, who typically are marginalized, Black, Indigenous, um, people of color, uh, are often the most uh, uncomfortable with telehealth, as well as those who typically don't have as many devices, don't feel as technologically comfortable. We'll be right back to Around the Room after this brief message from the CRA. Did you know that membership with the Canadian Rheumatology Association offers outstanding value through knowledge sharing, accredited educational offerings, advocacy, and research support? Members receive access to free webinars, programs, and discounts to events such as the CRA Review Course and Annual Scientific Meeting. Members also receive complimentary subscriptions to the Journal of Rheumatology and the Journal of the Canadian Rheumatology Association. Trainees can join for free and are eligible for educational and training opportunities, travel bursaries, and much more. These are just some of the many benefits of joining the Canadian Rheumatology Association. And if you're an existing member, spread the word to rheumatology colleagues who haven't joined yet. They'll thank you for it. For more information, please visit our website and www.room2021. You both were on now, opposing sides on the great debate. So, Tommy, you argued for telemedicine. Brent, you argued you, you had to take the stance of arguing against it. And and that argument was the one that really struck me, that the rise of telemedicine um, was good for uh, you know certain patients, like difficulty with mobility, getting into clinic, people who are further away or outside of... Um, urban settings or, you know, interior BC um, here on, on the West Coast here, um, but that it exacerbates inequities in care between tech savvy and, and either not so savvy or, or lack of access. And, and how do we actually get past that? Like, have we, have we kind of helped patients bridge that gap? Have we met them where they are? Or is that still um, a, a major gap in care? I'll tell you something, Daniel. So uh, I, have the pleasure of actually servicing some extremely remote communities in British Columbia, um, you know, some of which are hours down dirt roads. Um, and I think the question we need to be asking ourselves is, 
not what are the limitations of, of virtual care, but what can we do with this? Like, what can we do? Like, what, what are the boundaries we can push um, both for our physical exam, but then also for accessing people such as this? So, you know, in truth, in some of these, some of these communities that I service, most patients do not have internet in their house. There is like one sort of radio cell phone tower that's able to to transmit telehealth or tel- transmit internet. Um, and the workaround that we have is that, um, you know, we have the patients come into the, into the nursing station on reserve. It's a, it's an indigenous community. Um, and it works out great. I mean, they're able to walk, you know, 10 or 15 minutes to the local health clinic where they have, um, you know, significant trust and comfort that's been built up over the years and are able to see me who, you know, typically practices a 13-hour drive away from these communities. So you think about the previous model of care of asking patients, for example, with active rheumatoid arthritis to come down every three months for a 15-minute visit to see me. You think about the amount of money and the dangerous roads and uh, time off from work, and it just makes so much more sense to be to be doing things this way. I am not advocating for exclusive telehealth um, provision of care, but I think that if we can blend it into our usual care, the the results are are fantastic. And and there's actually a growing literature to support that as well. So it seems like we. Oh, sorry. Please go ahead, Tommy. Yeah, I was I was gonna say that. Uh, you know, I, I don't think it has to be a one-size-fits-all solution. I, I think this is a tool that we've all, including our patients, learned to use, and many of us become more comfortable to use. So it's another tool. And, um, you know, I think that we should be aware of where the limitations are and where the potential worsening of marginalized uh, populations might be so that we can make sure that we're making space uh, for them as well to, to sort of compensate. Because if, if all of a sudden, you know, you can see maybe more people virtually and that you have more room in your, you know, office, maybe it makes it easier for those who, who otherwise have challenges uh, getting there. And I think the other thing, you know, hopefully (laughs) that uh, this pandemic is is over or almost over and and so on. Um, so we'll have more choice. We'll be able to, I think, design it to what suits our needs and our patients' needs versus what the public health needs of the moment are. Mm-hmm. And and you know, two comments to to follow up on that is um, that that in addition to patients being accepting of telehealth, there also I, I see evolving literature that there are similar outcomes in terms of stable and new rheumatoid arthritis and other types of arthropathies where, you know, I think one thing that I worried about when I started using it is that the lower fidelity of just seeing someone by video conference or talking to them over the phone is going to lead me to make decisions that will influence the the course of someone's arthritis. So that, that's kind of, that was my fear. And I guess the evolving literature that's, that's suggesting that that's not necessarily true um, is is helpful. I still worry about it though. Should I? Well, I think I think as you point out Daniel that the literature is developing. Um I think the two papers that I I typically highlight uh with regards to, you know, safety of of virtual care 
One of them is the Regina Taylor-Jever paper from Saskatchewan, where she showed that patients that were followed uh, with rheumatoid arthritis for the course of a year um, by telehealth had essentially similar outcomes to patients who uh, were seen in person. There's also an interesting paper that came out uh, in summer of 2021 from um, a group in Italy, someone named Piga, where they they had patients with ankylosing spondylitis, rheumatoid arthritis, psoriatic arthritis, and lupus. Um, they were seen by a video um, by clinicians and then followed up in person two weeks later. And they wanted to see whether or not there was any difference in terms of decisions to escalate care, de-escalate care, or maintain the current course. And in point of fact, there was virtually no difference between the decisions to, you know, the clinical decisions that were made by telehealth um, when patients were seen in person. I think the the in-person assessments basically verified that the clinical decisions we make by telehealth are often the correct ones. Mm-hmm. The second um, item that I wanted to point to before we move on is that um, in the, the CMA uh, did a, a survey in 2020 that included kind of patient perspective on the use of telemedicine. And and even though most patients seem satisfied with the use of telemedicine, by preference, most patients seem to want an initial in-person first contact with doctors. And I wonder what you you guys think about that. Well, I think that a lot's changed since 2020. So, yeah. I mean, it would be interesting to see uh, where that goes. And in, in fact, I'm sure it actually, uh, like a pendulum, I'm sure it peaked the other way. Like I think people probably would have preferred virtual at, at one point and mm-hmm. probably it's come back a little bit now. I think, again, it's it's different personal preferences and, and people have now done it and used it or had relatives or friends who've done it and and are more comfortable. So I I think it's a very quickly shifting landscape. I think at the end of the day, um, you know, the, the, the patient physician relationship is about building trust. And I think there is certainly something to be said about uh, looking someone in the eye and sharing the same space with them, uh, you know, physical space with them. I think it does have an edge over virtual space, but I think that, you know, with video and, um, you know, your demeanor, your talk, your pace, all those things, how you set things up, I think we can also uh, create those, you know, appropriate uh, relationships as well that that are strong and and appreciated. I completely agree with uh, with Tommy's comments about um, the interpersonal dimension that occurs during an in-person versus a virtual initial visit. Uh, I have two other comments, however. Um, so one comment would, would center around, you know, the patient's environment. So I think if you are, you know, a patient who lives... 15 minutes away from my my office, it absolutely makes sense to have initial consults, you know, in person, whenever feasible with with the COVID-19 pandemic. However, you know, I also, as I I mentioned before, see a lot of patients from all corners of the province, very far away from any rheumatologist. And I think in those cases, you know, doing initial consults is much preferable to, um, 
you know, having them wait for months and months and months to be able to see someone in person, particularly if they're seen by a traveling clinic that goes up to their community sporadically. However, I will, I will as, a, as a second point, just emphasize that this is a very important question within the literature. We, we don't know about uh, the diagnostic accuracy provided by initial consults uh, in rheumatology, virtually. I think the other, I mean, uh, rheumatology, one of the things I enjoy most about rheumatology is the importance of physical exam and physical exam findings. But I think it still holds true that, you know, history trumps physical most of the time. And and I think that's why, you know, virtual is so viable. And in fact, that's why telephone, you know, has a role to play as well. Um, I think, you know, Brent and I are both strong believers in, in the video component. But, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, we, we know that history will drive most, uh, you know, of your decision making, at least your pretest probabilities and all of that sort of thing. So, you know, I think that's one of the reasons why maybe some of these outcomes where decisions aren't necessarily different uh, based on virtual versus in person two weeks later. Yeah, so so it certainly seems like you both made a case that it's a tool in the the tool belt. It's not to replace physical exam or in person assessment. It's to complement it, and that we need to have some agility uh, in terms of deciding on a case by case, patient by patient basis who's an appropriate candidate to do video, telephone, or or who needs to come in. Um, so I think you you both made strong cases for that. The analogy I like to make, Danielle, it's virtual care is just like a stethoscope. Uh, I don't think you would ever plan a cardiac surgery based on cardiac auscultation with your stethoscope, but it's a tool that we all use, and it's got its role in medicine, uh, and and it's our job to figure out how to how to use virtual care in a safe and effective way. One thing I wanted to add, actually, was one of the challenges I came across when um, when virtual care was just getting going. The CMA had come out with their virtual care playbook. The Royal College has, had looked at that and essentially said, we think this sounds pretty good. We'll, we'll flag on top of that or jump on top of that as well. Um, and in there, it, you know, it, it said that musculoskeletal care is inappropriate for virtual. And I, I think that took me aback because, you know, I, I knew that was not necessarily true. Um, I think we've come a longer way from that. I think the CMA uh, has heard from other organizations like the CRA that there is a role, an evidence base for rheumatology and musculoskeletal care in general to be done virtually too. So I think we've we've come a long way from that sort of like, oh, you can't do musculoskeletal stuff over video. And and to follow up on that, so so we have come a long way. And I'm wondering, Tommy, if you can comment on where you kind of expect things to go in the next five, 10 years, if there's going to be any major changes to the way we practice, or have we kind of plateaued in terms of what to expect? Yeah, that's a great question. I mean, the in, in terms of the fees, I think that uh, the position statement the Canadian Rheumatology Association came out with was, was really good. And in terms of looking at that, I think fees should be equal in terms of, of uh, mode of um, delivery of care. If, if the quality of care is the same, um, then the mode shouldn't matter. 
I think each province kind of entered into telehealth in, in slightly different ways and I think is coming out in different ways. And I think we need to listen to our colleagues across the country and help them advocate to, to ensure that it, you know, it's still a tool that they can use for all those reasons we just talked about. Um, I think that as we come out of the pandemic, most uh, governments are going to look at telehealth and I think they're going to look at things that have driven up utilization. Um, telephone has, I think, driven up utilization just because it tends to be a little bit faster. Um, I think virtual walk-in clinics that have popped up across the country, more so in primary care, um, have also uh, played a role or are playing a role. So I think there is a, there's going to be a push to try to get a, a sense of where things are going and how to control spending as the government always tries to do. Um, and I, I try to indicate that we have to treat different specialties differently. And, and certainly uh, I can't speak on behalf of primary care or orthopedics or whatever. And I, I try to speak about rheumatology and I think that there is an important role for it to play in rheumatology. I think that uh, we'll know better uh, with time, different workflows to, to more efficiently uh, integrate telehealth into our practices. I think as we all sort of start opening up our clinics fully, people will start thinking, am I going to have every third patient be, you know, telehealth? Am I going to have a telehealth afternoon? Am I going to, you know, what am I going um, to do to make that workflow? And I think that will be something for us to all learn to sort of just be more efficient as well. Yeah, I'm, I'm kind of interested in the, the science fiction future of what do offices look like um, now that we have an option of, of not always seeing people in person, which to me also means not always physically being in the office. Where where do I practice now and what does that look like may shift uh, over time. You know, so Brent, I'd, I'd love to hear because I, I, I have uh, I've seen your lecture on this, but I'd, I'd love to give listeners maybe your, your top few tips for success when you're doing telehealth. Sure. <laughs> well, you know, again, uh, my top few tips really center around video telehealth. Um, I would, I think the number one tip is do try to do video as opposed to telephone. You gain so much more clinical data and it allows you to, pro, you know, provide much more targeted, um, precise, you know, uh, clinical care. Um, mm -hmm. I understand that it's challenging and I understand that there is a learning curve. Um, what I would strongly recommend is that um, you don't take the burden on completely by yourself. There's a huge amount that your office staff can do to prepare the patients in advance, um, either uh, from sending out uh, emails, you know, describing appropriate clothing and lighting and appropriate settings. I think we've all had patients connect to us, you know, while they're, you know, a passenger in a driving car, which is not very appropriate. And then beyond that, I mean, I think there are very many resources at this juncture available for um, for creative ways to perform the MSK physical exam. I think there's an excellent paper by the Mayo Clinic on this. Uh, Bone and Joint Canada has excellent resources as well. I, I think if you want the most comprehensive um, body of information for how to set up a successful telehealth uh, encounter, I would probably go to the Bone and Joint Canada website. They've got everything there. That's great. And uh, t 
Tommy, maybe the last word to you and any, any extra tips that you'd add on. You know, I'm lucky. I get to work with, uh, kids uh, all day and and they are definitely well often a little more limber uh depending on how well we're treating their arthritis i guess but i think i'm fortunate that there's usually a second person there with them that can sort of take control of the camera and and we can be a little bit more mobile um i can get uh, somebody else to sort of help pull or push things or or what have you and and, and that makes it my job easier but i also think just being curious and creative, you know, if, if you've got a good relationship with, with the patient on the other side, you know, ask them to put the camera on the floor and, and stand in front of it. So you can really see those ankles. And I, I think, you know, you sometimes get a better view of the ankles <laughs> there than you ever would uh, in your, your actual uh, practice. Um, yeah. And, and I think there's, you know, there's, there are other opportunities too. I've been uh, teaching residents, you know, along the way. And I find, you know, observing a resident, uh, you know, by hiding myself on the camera is a lot easier than sitting in the corner of a room, you know, so there are other benefits uh, educationally as well, I think, from running telehealth visits. And, uh, and I, I think that, you know, I probably have less no shows and, and those types of things too. So you, you get, you don't have to waste space for people who don't show up and double, you know, book them again later sort of thing. Tommy, what's the most unusual place a patient shown up to a video conference with you? I, I think it's actually tied between two. I had one who, who showed up on a boat. So that, that was kind of uh, interesting. Uh, I have a sort of a rule that, you know, you, you should, you need to be in a private space, not out in public and so on. So I did have someone show up with their daughter at the hair salon once. And I was said, you know, we, we're going to need to reschedule this. It's not going to work. Uh, and they said, oh, no, we can, we can, we'll, ha- we'll make our way to a private room. So I think they snuck into some esthetician's room and we ended up doing the consult through there. How about you, Brent? Gosh, uh, I mean, I can think of some examples of patients that I thought were normal functioning individuals, and then I connect with them by telehealth, and they're in their pajamas at 11 o'clock in the morning with, you know, a a mason jar of wine, you know, (laughs) in their hand talking to me. And I think, gosh, I didn't realize that this was, uh, this was an issue in your life. Um, So I think that's, that's probably been one of the more, more colorful experiences I've had. That's actually like helpful observational data to kind of flavor your your consultation. And I, I think probably everyone's had this, but I've had a few people show up from the bathroom. Um, so <laughs> I think we, we've all probably been there. Well, Tommy and Brent, I really appreciate you both taking the time and uh, I really appreciate your insight. So thanks for coming on the show today. Thanks for having me. Thank you very much, Daniel. If you're interested in more information, you can read the CRA consensus statement on best practices for virtual care and rheumatology on the CRA website. That's it for this episode of Around the Room. For questions, comments, and future episode ideas, email us at info at room.ca or tag our Twitter account with your question at CRASCRroom. Around the Room is produced by David McGuffin, Dr. Dax Ramsey, and Kevin Bagenoth. We would like to give a special thanks to the Communications Committee and the staff of the CRA for their hard work. And of course, an extra special thanks to Dr. Brent Ohada and Dr. Tommy Gershman. Our theme music was composed by Aaron Fontwell. 
If you enjoyed your time with us, please give us a rating and subscribe so you don't miss future episodes. You can also share this podcast with your colleagues and spread the word on social media. I'm Daniel Ennis. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time.